0: Esther chapter 9. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the month, when the king's commandment and his decree came near to be put in execution, on the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to conquer them, but it was turned out the opposite happened, that the Jews conquered those who hated them, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who wanted to harm them. No one could withstand them, because the fear of them had fallen on all the people. All the princes of the provinces, the local governors, the governors, and those who did the king's business, helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew greater and greater. The Jews struck all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, and with slaughter and destruction. And did what they wanted to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men. They killed Pashadantha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vyasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. On that day, The number of those who were slain in the citadel of Susa was brought before the king. The king said to Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed five hundred men in the citadel of Susa, including the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Susa, to do tomorrow also according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. A king commanded this to be done. A decree was given out in Susa, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. The Jews who were in Susa gathered themselves together on the fourteenth day also of the month of Adar, and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The other Jews who were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together, defended their lives, and had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hand on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa, assembled together on the 13th and on the 14th days of the month, and on the fifteenth day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villagers who lived in the unwalled towns make the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting, a good day, and a day of sending presents of food to one another. Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both near and far, to enjoin them that they should keep the fourteenth and fifteenth days of the month of Adar yearly, as the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies, and the month which was turned to them from sorrow to gladness, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, and of sending presents of food to one another, and gifts to the needy. The Jews accepted the custom that they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when this became known to the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked plan, which he had planned against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, from the word poor, because of all the words of this letter, and of that which had been seen concerning this matter, and that which had come to them. The Jews established and imposed on themselves, and on their descendants, and on all who joined themselves to them, so that it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to what was written, and according to its appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor their memory perish from their offspring. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm the second letter of Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with the words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim in their appointed times, as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the Queen had decreed, and as they had imposed on themselves and their descendants in the matter of fastings and their cry. The commandment of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Wow, this is actually, uh, for me, interesting chapter, because it's all about um, what happens on the day of Purim and the, the celebration of the Feast of Purim going forward. So on the 13th month of Adar, which was the 12th month of the Jewish calendar, that was supposed to be the day that all the enemies of the Jews rose up and destroyed them. But then there was the second decree which said the Jews were allowed to attack and defend. And then a lot of people didn't want to attack the Jews because they now realised that the king liked Jewish people and his queen was a Jew and his prime minister was a Jew. So the, the day became a day where the Jews actually destroyed their enemies. It ended up flipping around completely. And in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital city, 500 men were destroyed who were enemies of the Jews. And then all around the rest of the empire, 75,000 people who were enemies of the Jews were destroyed. But it says they didn't lay their hands on the plunder. So they weren't being greedy. They weren't trying to get what was theirs. But it was a chance to destroy people who attacked them. And so in the citadel of Susa, this is where Haman had been living. Haman had been hanged on his own gallows. But on this particular day, his 10 sons, they try to attack the Jews. And the names of the 10 sons that we read out, uh, names like Parshathan and um, all very Persian sounding names. I I quite like the sound of those Persian names and uh, very, very interesting. I remember um, when I was in India, the very first time we were taken to this archaeological, well, it was like a, Very ancient site carved purely out of rocks. And this was way back in the time when India was a part of the Persian Empire, like a couple of hundred years before Jesus, 400 years before Jesus or whatever. And I'm looking at these rocks and it's like a whole building like carved into rocks. You could like walk it where you could have walked into it, except they had like kind of, you couldn't, they wouldn't let you. But it just looked so cool. And then you've got all the names of the people, all these very Persian sounding names very very interesting and we've got the names of these 10 sons of haman very persian sounding um there's one of the accusations of the book of esther is oh it wasn't written until you know 100 years before jesus is what someone said well it's it's strange you know to write a book way 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 later and put that level of detail in with all the persian names like to say for example someone had 10 sons and actually name them all and and all have the exact persian names these types of features make you think, because it is what happened, that the book was actually written at the time of the events. And of course that we do believe the book of Esther was written at the time of the events. And if you think that Mordecai wrote it, as I tend to think, then of course he would have known all the names of those people firsthand. And so what happened here is that, is that Haman's 10 sons, they're amongst the 500 people who were killed in Susa because they rise up to attack, but they're destroyed. And so it, it ends up being a great turnaround and the Jewish people, instead of being in, afraid for their lives, end up defeating their enemies and establishing peace and safety in the empire. So I was thinking it was an interesting um, thing to contemplate, uh, you know, the idea of a, what posterity or what legacy Haman left for his son. So you think of Haman, the antagonist of this book, you know, the evil character. And so he is a guy who hates the Jews, he plots against the Jews, he, his own plot comes back on his own head and destroys him, but then what type of a legacy has he left for his own family, for his wife, for his own sons, for his own grandchildren? His own sons end up getting killed because of his the way he brought them up, the way he taught them, the values he put into their life, then they end up being destroyed, and so that ends up having an effect on, you know, Generations to come, grandchildren, and the wives of all these men that have been killed, like their lives are destroyed and ruined by this one man's, you know, his choices and and that. There's a a famous study that was done of two men, and I'm pretty sure it was 1700s ish. Um, The study wasn't done in the 1700s, but the two men were from the 1700s, and one was Jonathan Edwards, the famous revivalist, and the other was Max Duke a criminal (laughs) and so the study was done where they traced the family trees of these men and worked out what became of all their ancestors so with with uh, Max Duke he ended up you know he ended up having something like a thousand ancestors and you know like I, I haven't got the exact stats you've just got to google to find this and something like 200 ended up being in prison and 150 ended up being prostitutes and and you look at in his family line Hardly any of them were just regular, normal, hardworking people. And then you look at Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist and preacher. You know, he's got uh, 29 became lawyers and, and 300 became businessmen. And, you know, one became a vice president of the United States and, and 12 became congressmen. And, and you look at his line, you think, goodness me, the posterity that comes from a good man... Jonathan Edwards and the way it affected all his children grandchildren great-great-grandchildren like you could descend from Jonathan Edwards and not even know it and yet your life is so much better off just because you are or you could descend from Max Dukes and he had a lot more children than Jonathan Edwards and, and part of that has to do with children out of wedlock and all sorts of crazy stuff and just the terrible lives and the places they all ended up in a lot of them in prison We'll see that's your posterity you compare the posterity of Mordecai in this book with the posterity of Haman. Whose family would you like to be in? Well, then you apply that to yourself and you say, what type of posterity will you leave for your children and your family? Well, we want to leave the best one we can. And how do we do that? By putting the Lord first, by becoming people of prayer, involving the Lord in our lives, trying to teach our children to do the same. And what type of spiritual posterity? You know, having people that you love, your neighbours, people you care about you te- you share the gospel you show acts of love you know you, you, you share the love of christ all of this type of thing so the you know the the book as well as all the other things it is is also a lesson in posterity <laughs> now in this book it says the 10 sons of haman were hanged on the gallows this was a posthumous hanging in other words they were already dead but they were hanged up after they were dead And you'd say, what's the point of that? Well, the point is to humiliate them. Now, they wouldn't have felt the humiliation, but the point was it was humiliating, and the point was that everyone could see it. So you imagine that, you know, and this is one of the reasons why Romans used to crucify people. They used to crucify people in the most painful and humiliating way possible because it was a a deterrent. (laughs) And in this chapter, it says that the fear of Mordecai fell on all the people. Well, you can see when this type of thing, posthumous hangings is done, it's basically setting an example, you know, do the right thing. <laughs> so it's it's good in that sense, but it's also, it's also a window into ancient times when things were definitely crazier than they are now. Now, finally, we're going to finish just by chatting about the Feast of Purim for a few minutes. So at the end of this chapter, they've been delivered from all their enemies and Esther and Mordecai send forth a decree to say that they're going to celebrate this feast every year so what would happen is that out in the provinces they would celebrate it on the 14th day of the month because you know they they fought on the 13th and 14th was their first day off and they celebrated but in the capital they was celebrated on the 14th and the 15th because they had two days of uh, fighting and then so they would celebrate for two days so all around the world Jews celebrate the feast of Purim and uh, it's super interesting It's not the same in every place, but I was reading up on this and there are some things that are fairly common. One of the things that's really common is that they will, Jewish families, will will get their little girls and dress them up as like princesses, basically dress them up as pretty as they can, they're dressing up as Esther. And they get their little boys, dress them up as handsome as they can, they're dressing them up as Mordecai. And they will bring them along to the synagogue and have a basically a beauty pageant. Show off all their their lovely costumes. And then while they're there at the synagogue, they will read the scroll of Esther. So all 10 chapters, they read the story of Esther. And then as part of that, they give gifts to the poor. And they do this one other thing which I think is very cool. They make these special pastries which are like triangle shaped. And they've got like a jam in them but sometimes they have other things in them. And uh, they can be sweet or savory. And they They have a name which is Hamadatha or something like that, but the nickname for them is Haman's ears. (laughs) Ears. So they will eat these things (laughs) as part of their celebration of Purim. I think it's kind of cool. You're you're celebrating the day that the Lord delivered your ancestors from a genocide, and while you're doing it, you're munching on Haman's ears. Now, what I thought was interesting was in John chapter 5 in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for one of the minor feasts. So, you know, the Jews had these three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, but there were these other minor feasts, and one of the minor feasts is Purim. We don't know which feast it was in John chapter 5, but a lot of the commentators seriously think it could be the Feast of Purim. So here we got a chapter where Jesus is, in all likelihood, in Jerusalem, and guess what he's doing? He's celebrating... Purim, this event right here. And um, I was talking to my dad and telling my dad about this. And dad said, um, he, he said, what was really interesting about that was, you know, you can just imagine Jesus sitting around and people saying, isn't God good? You know, look what God did. And you can see Jesus thinking to himself, ah, that was me. I did that. Because, <laughs> you know, it's Christ. It's Christ who's the deliverer in the book of Esther. And so Jesus is celebrating Purim, but it's something that he himself brought about. It's remarkable. Well, I think it's interesting that Jesus may have eaten Haman's ears. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, well, one of these years I wouldn't even mind, you know, celebrating Purim. We don't do it to be more spiritual, but there's something wonderful about celebrating and remembering what the Lord has done. Now, final thought if you're um, just interested in a little bit of extra history, you can go and Google Purim purim in modern times so especially through the world war ii period um, you know jewish people went through they basically did go through well they did they went through a genocide in world war ii and there were a lot of comparisons with jewish people from this story of esther to what they went through in the time of hitler the difference of course was they weren't delivered in world war ii But one of the things that Hitler banned was the the celebration of the Feast of Purim. He banned that in 1938 before World War II even got started. He would not let the Jews celebrate this feast. Of course, a lot of them did anyway in secret. Um, But when you read up um, some of the things that have happened in modern history, it's very interesting. Some of it's very sad as well. The Jewish people, you know, they were delivered but they still need a deliverance in another way because they, they haven't recognized the Lord Jesus as their Christ. And Christ is actually the hidden figure in the story of Esther. The Jewish people haven't seen him there yet. So if you want to pray for Jewish people, pray that their eyes would be opened to see their Messiah. It'll be the best thing that ever happened to them. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your deliverance of your people. You're faithful and kind. And uh, Lord, we do pray that you'd open the eyes of Jewish people Lord, those who are descended from Jews and those who have become Jews by choice, will open their eyes to see Christ the Messiah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.